I made a note. Look around the room. <laughs> step by step instructions. <laughs> Take a drink. <laughs> uh, well, it's wonderful to see everyone. Everyone said, "Look around, <laughs> connect. You'll you'll be fine." <laughs> uh, <laughs> first, I want to start off by thanking my teacher, Galen Roshi, for knowing my spiritual needs better than I do, <laughs> and for guiding me to this place today. And then I'd like to thank my Dharma sisters, uh, Andrew, Shane, Daniel, or Shane. Oh, <laughs> Kent, Mark, and Michael uh, for inspiration, support, and accountability. And then I'd like to thank my husband Brian in the black shirt with the moon or death. I like to think that's the Death Star. <laughs> <laughs> for never giving up on me. Uh, I think I already thanked you all, but thank you again. Thanks for coming. Uh, so I, my hope is today that the Dharma speaks through me and you get inspired by it. Um, and maybe brings you some kind of benefit. So in fair warning, if you couldn't tell, uh, I'm allergic to public speaking. <laughs> so if I uh, start to itch <laughs> or can't get my breath, bring me an EpiPen. <laughs> Okay, so this is a way seeking mind talk, which is your first talk, and it's about how you came onto this path, on the Buddhist path. And uh, I really struggled with trying to figure out how did I end up here. Um, I looked back through my life, and there were some obvious moments that I could probably say, yeah, that's what brought me here. Um, but most of them are murky. Um, so, and they require like some kind of definition. So I just got so frustrated. I was like, okay, I'm just going to leave it up to two things. Uh, I'm either going to give you the uh, Reader's Digest version, which is that, uh, here it is, one day I got into my car and I drove to the Zen Center, and that's how I ended up here. <laughs> Although it's factual, and to the point, it would make for a very short Dharma talk. Um, Thanks for coming. <laughs> uh, you get 30 minutes back in your day, you're welcome. <laughs> so the, the second option was that I, I just give you my autobiography since birth in the hopes that my ways in your mind would reveal itself, like a telenovela, maybe. <laughs> um, being an only child, you can imagine which version I decided on. I am being here all day <laughs> for part one. <laughs> I thought I'd give you my uh, autobiography. It started out Golden Girls style. So if you remember Sophia Petrillo, picture it. <laughs> Cass County Hospital, 1973. <laughs> A star is born. <laughs> I don't know if you can see very well in the back, but so I am uh, two years old in this picture, and uh, if you can't tell, 
I have a purse. <laughs> I have stockings. <laughs> I had a lovely sun hat and sunglasses. <laughs> Can we bring it over to the Zoom people? <laughs> so according to my mother, I took it. I, that's all on me. I took it all on myself to go into her closet and pick all that out myself. So clearly, I was destined to be a star. <laughs> I mean, just just look at my style. <laughs> um, and if you if you could see it, I'm really happy. And uh, sadly, that little boy didn't stick around for very long because he quickly learned that who he was as he was wasn't enough. And as as a result, <laughs> he would spend decades searching for love and belonging. And that's what brought him here. <laughs> when I identified love and belonging as uh, my themes for today, Galen said, uh, suggested that I wrap them up. Oh, you're going to make me cry. <laughs> I'm going to wrap them up in a talk about taking uh, refuge in a triple treasure. Taking, taking refuge in Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. Okay. I think my time is gone. Uh, I guess I'll just go with the moment. <laughs> so, uh, I have to, at first I was like, I didn't really understand the connection between love and belonging and taking refuge in Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. Uh, in fact, I was like, uh, even though the, the, the refuges to take refuge in Buddha Dharma are the three of the first three of the 16 precepts, I couldn't really remember talking about them in our precepts class. Uh, and I even went back into the old syllabus. I was like, oh, yeah, they're there. I was like, well, how is it I couldn't remember we talked about them? How is it I completely overlooked them? Um, and I came to uh, the conclusion that I must have uh, just put more emphasis or weight on the other 13 precepts, you know, like don't lie, kill, cheat, or still. I thought for sure those were probably more important um, than taking refuge, like love and belonging. Uh, so I, I, I was like, well, I thought about it. And I was like, well, you know, here at the Zen Center, we, we, pay homage to the triple treasure in various ways and forms every day, multiple times a day. Uh, for example, you know, Sunday morning service, we start and end service with three vows to the triple treasure. Uh, what we chant, the Shosomyo Kichijo Drani and the purification uh, three times each for the triple treasure. Um, while we are chanting the doshi vows at least three times, I can't count how many times, but because <laughs> I'm busy chanting. But uh, if you've ever attended a session, uh, we end every evening with a chant, with the chants in Pali, the triple treasure, taking refuge in Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. Um, as you saw before I came here, I bowed three times at the mat, and then I got up and I bowed again towards the altar, taking refuge in Buddha. Came over here, bowed towards his cushion, taking refuge in the Dharma that was about to speak through me. And then I turned around and bowed to all of you, taking refuge in you, the Sangha. 
And after this is over, I'll do it two more times. <laughs> and then it'll be time. <laughs> so clearly the triple treasure is a big deal. I still didn't understand its connection to love and belonging. So I had to do some research. And uh, this is what I came up with. Um, taking refuge in the triple treasure is in, is in itself an act of love and belonging. And so according to our founder, Tension Reb Anderson, this is, I'll read this quote by him. The expression take refuge is translated from the original Pali, Sarana Gamana. Sarana refers to a shelter, protection, or sanctuary, some place of peace and safety. Gamana refers to the act of returning. I get the English word refuge seems quite appropriate because it carries the sense of both place and going back. It is synonymous with shelter and protection. It is anything to which you may turn to for help or relief. The Latin root refugere means to flee or to fly back. So when we take refuge in the triple treasure, we are flying back to our true home. So I thought what I'd do today is talk about uh, each of the three jewels and how I came to find love and belonging through taking refuge in each one of them. Note to take it, drink a water. <laughs> <laughs> they said it would be easier. <laughs> so according to tension, Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha uh, each have at least three different meanings. So one meaning of the word Dharma is uh, the transformation of Buddhist teachings into scripture. Now, I have a really hard time with the word scripture. Um, this scripture for me historically came with a lot of rejection. You see, I always knew that I was different. My, one of my very first memories is as a young boy is um, playing doctor with one of the other boys down the street and, you know, where we examine each other's body parts. And I, I, I enjoyed it. Uh, I didn't know that I was gay um, and I didn't even know what gay was. Uh, I just knew that uh, if you'd asked me what I wanted to be when I grew up, I would have said a doctor. <laughs> but if you asked Brian, I can't even stand the side of blood. So that would have never worked. <laughs> Okay, so my mother thought that she was being a good Christian woman the day that she uh, quoted scripture to me, which was the day that she caught me playing doctor. Uh, I remember it like it was yesterday. I can still see where we were standing, what she's wearing, her hairstyle. And I can still see her lips move as she says, God doesn't approve, you're going to hell. And uh, that's one of the pieces. And, uh, that my actions are simple. So I think I was five years old and I learned that I was unnatural, unlovable, and I didn't belong. So I'm a psychotherapist. 
I, I specialize in trauma. And when most people hear the word trauma, they think of what we call the capital T traumas, which are war, violence, and sexual assault. Um, but there's a whole bunch of what we call little T traumas, which are just those little rejections that you experience every day. Uh, abandonment, those are the big ones. Um, but if, you, if they're repeated over time, they become conditioned and they wreak havoc on your life. Um, so my entire upbringing was a constant barrage of these little T traumas. Um, statements about who I was, as I was, uh, negative messages, um, which I came to believe were factual. You know, to the many churches that I was forced to attend, I was an abomination. To the bullies that I uh, encountered from elementary to high school, I was little sissy maggot faggot who didn't belong with the boys. And then to my stepfather, people like me were meant for target practice. Mm. My life became a vicious cycle between praying the gay away and plotting my own death. And if I hadn't believed at the time that God condemned suicide, I would have taken my life a long time ago. Um, so when I finally came out at 19, I got as far away from religion as possible. And any mention of the word scripture would have sent me into a fight or flight response. If it wasn't for mindfulness, I probably never would have found the Dharma. So fast forward a few decades, I was working at uh, the addiction clinic in the Las Vegas VA hospital. And uh, part of being a psychotherapist, at least a good one, is uh, you always try to stay up on the new therapies, new skills, techniques, so that you can treat different mental conditions. And at the time, there was a small group of new therapies coming out uh, that were showing a lot of promise with um, addiction and trauma, and they were mindfulness-based. And I had never really heard of the word mindfulness before, um, but I had heard of meditation. And uh, the prerequisite for these therapies was that you have your own secular daily mindfulness meditation practice. And I thought, well, this would be a good chance for me to learn how to meditate and start that. And I, I just loved it. It did so much for me. And, uh, and I imparted it to all the veterans that I worked with. But as I kept going, uh, I learned different techniques or different variations of the same therapy, basically. But something kept gnawing at me. I felt like something was missing. Um, so I just I embarked on a journey to try to find out what are the origins of this thing called mindfulness and where did it come from, you know, what's what's it about? Um, and that's when I discovered it's rooted in this thing called the Dharma. So most of you probably had this encounter as well, but my first encounter with the Dharma was the Four Noble Truths scripture form. Uh, and if you know about the Four Noble Truths, they're the foundations upon which most Buddhist teachings exist. 
All right, there's the first truth, is that in life there is dissatisfaction and suffering. The second truth explains the reason why we suffer. It's due to clinging or avoiding. We either want life to be other than it is, or we don't want life to change. The third truth reveals that you can actually do something about it. You can end it. And the fourth truth is that if you walk the path, the Eightfold Path, it will lead to awakening and an end of suffering. So for me, reading these truths has just made perfect sense to me. I was like, here's this guy, Buddha, which just means awakened one or enlightened one, who basically said, hey, I found a way to alleviate my own suffering. And you know what? You can too. It's simple if you understand that you are the cause of your own suffering. And if you are the cause, you are also the cure. And the power to alleviate suffering resides within you. There was no mention of sin or homosexuality or devotion to an external being, nor were his words exclusive to a select few. The Dharma explained that anyone and everyone could alleviate suffering and attain enlightenment or Buddhahood. And that's the second meaning of the word Dharma. Freedom from any difference between ourselves and Buddha. Knowing that I was no different from Buddha, and like him, I had the power to alleviate my own suffering, was not only truly liberating, but very comforting. All I had to do was take solace or refuge in this Dharma truth. The final meaning of the word Dharma is the truth that is realized by a Buddha. Though the Four Noble Truths are perhaps the most popular of Buddhist teachings, uh, he obviously spoke of many other things and other truths, uh, one of which is impermanence, which is that nothing lasts forever and everything changes. Uh, this not only applies to suffering, suffering comes and goes, but so does enlightenment. Enlightenment comes and goes. And moments of enlightenment are just that, moments. Thus, every moment is a new moment to take refuge in the Dharma. If you recall, refuge means to take solace again or to return to sanctuary again. In this context, it means, it means you can return to the Dharma truth over and over again. That you can alleviate your suffering every moment or that you can attain enlightenment any moment. This is the reality or truth realized by someone seeking enlightenment or Buddha. So even though I ditched the dogma of my upbringing, I was conditioned to hate myself. I was conditioned oh, here it goes again, <laughs> to believe that I didn't belong. Thus, depression and isolation are my defaults. Uh, if I'm not paying close attention, I can quickly find myself at home, alone, eating my feelings, thinking that no one cares. However, when I take refuge in the truth of the Dharma, then I understand that this is a prison of my own making and that if I choose to, I can, there's a way out. So the act of taking refuge is an act of self-love because we are choosing to take care of our suffering 
rather than let our suffering destroy us. We are also choosing to love others when we take care of our own suffering. There's a popular phrase in therapeutic and 12-step communities. It's that hurt people hurt people. Meaning that when we suffer, we often take our hurt out on others, which causes them to suffer. Misery loves company, you could say. However, when we we take refuge in Dharma, when we take care of our own suffering, we prevent others from having to suffer from, from us. And that's an act of love towards others. How am I doing? <laughs> okay, Dharma's down. Now song it. <laughs> okay, Sangha is the community of bodhisattvas or Buddhist practitioners. That's one thing. <laughs> Uh, so I lived in Las Vegas prior to moving here to Houston, and towards the end of my stay there, uh, I had cultivated a daily mindfulness practice. I was reading the Dharma pretty regularly, and I was listening to Buddhist podcasts. I couldn't get enough, but I was not connected to a sangha. Excuse me. So when I moved here, uh, I made that my top priority. I needed to find a sangha. And of of the 10 or so temples that I found on Google, and I made a list. Uh, I chose to come here first because they had a LGBT group. And after only my first visit, I threw away the list of the remaining temples <laughs> <laughs> because I, I just knew I found a place for me. And I'm sure many of you know that feeling. So a few months ago, we had our first session at the land uh, with attention Rev Anderson. And during a Dharma talk Q&A, Sangha member Maite uh, expressed deep gratitude, sorry, deep gratitude towards Sangha member Louise, <laughs> attributing her first soft landing at the Zen Center to Louise's kind smile and warm welcome. And that Maite's revelation really resonated with me because I had the same experience. I too was greeted by Louise in the same way. (laughs) She made me feel welcome. And she guided me through my first morning service. And uh, growing up, the first part of my life, I was Catholic. Uh, The bows and chants really were hard. It's like, oh, more genuflecting. (laughs) But afterwards, Louise checked in on me. And uh, I can't remember exactly what you said, Louise, but uh, I just remember I expressed to you how difficult it was and that I was just practicing sitting with the discomfort of it. You just, uh, you empathized with me and you offered encouragement and you gave me some kind of funny joke which just made it all better. Uh, And in that moment, I felt seen and accepted. (laughs) So after morning service, I was greeted by Galen Roshi. And uh, I almost ran away from her. (laughs) Because when I saw her lock eyes with me, I was like, what's she want? (laughs) 
straight towards me. Um, but if you know Galen, she loves to welcome, that's her priority, welcome all new members to the Zen Center. And uh, she came over and greeted me, and then she made sure that I met other Sangha members. Um, and although such things are typically difficult for this introvert, um, being made to feel like I was seen and welcome and that I belonged was everything, especially given my history with religious places. <laughs> so what really sealed the deal, though, for me, was this, the following week, Galen came greeting me by name. <laughs> and I was like, how does she remember my name? And we talked for like 10 seconds. And there's been six days in between the last time I was here. And I forgot her name. Clearly, <laughs> 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 she had to forgot mine. <laughs> when I'm nervous, I drink water. That's <laughs> a good thing, I guess. Um, so, but the thing I never forgot was her hospitality and the hospitality of all of you. And that's what made me keep coming back. So a week or so later, I attended my first queer dharma group where I met fellow queer song members who also made me feel welcome, uh, especially my dharma sister, Andrew. Did I mention you earlier? Okay. <laughs> I forget when I get nervous too. Uh, Andrew quickly became my best friend. And it turns out we had the same birthday. <laughs> Clearly, I'm 30, 40 years younger. <laughs> so, coming to the Zen Center was honestly the first time in my life that I felt like I belonged. Um, the feeling was short lived, though. Prior and I were like, what? Wait, I thought this was about love and belonging. Can you Thought you found love and belonging here. Now you're saying you lost it already? Well, yes and no. You know, one is impermanence. You know, those feelings come and go, like all feelings. Uh, but the second part of that, what caused that, is my historic conditioning that I don't belong. Right? That started to uh, rear its ugly head. Uh, as belonging wore off, frustration and irritation moved in. Uh, my internal critic started to chime in on everything here. Like, it didn't like the way this person breathes. <laughs> it didn't like the way that person bowed. It didn't like the questions these people asked during the Q&A. Uh, what else did I say? <laughs> didn't like the way some people chanted. Um, it seemed like every wonderful song member that I had grown to love now frustrated the hell out of me. <laughs> and it became increasingly difficult to be the only perfect person here. <laughs> I heard a whisper. <laughs> it is true. <laughs> I probably would have left if it wasn't for my mindfulness practice, taking refuge in the Dharma, and my training as a union psychologist, 
a Swiss psychiatrist, Carl Jung, uh, once famously said, everything that irritates us about others can lead us to an understanding of ourselves." This is probably one of my favorite quotes of his and one that I truly believe and I try to practice whenever everyone irritates me because <laughs> <laughs> it's inevitable that everyone will. Um, so at the time, though, I didn't understand uh, why my song members were frustrating me so. Uh, but I did understand that my suffering was my own doing and that if I just sat with it long enough, I, it could, I could figure it out. Um, and eventually I came to an understanding. I sat for it with that discomfort for about a year uh, until it hit me. It was my conditioning. The historic belief that I didn't belong was trying to recreate my past here at the Zen Center. It hoped that I would become so frustrated with everyone that I'd just eventually leave. A self-fulfilling prophecy of a disconnected life. <laughs> this realization liberated me, which brings me to the second meaning of the word sangha, which is the release of beings from suffering and bondage to the world of birth and death. Buddha was a very wise person. He understood that creating a community of fellow practitioners was a safe method for the illumination and digestion of conditioning. You know, I'm much more likely to rage at someone in traffic for cutting me off than uh, rage at someone here for cutting me off at the way to the bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> this community creates a safe container for me to be able to sit with this stuff and see it for what it really is and transform, digest it and transform it into understanding and harmony, which is the third meaning of the word Sangha, harmony. So to take refuge in Sangha is to take comfort in knowing that here among your fellow practitioners, you will not only find people that have the same interest in Buddhism, um, but you'll find acceptance, but also that you'll have the opportunity to illuminate and digest um, yourself away from your delusions. And because the pull of conditioning is very powerful, you know, the moment you leave here, you're back in it. So if you come back here over and over again, you have a chance to see it again, digest it again, and liberate yourself. Oh, damn, not too bad. Now I'm feeling better. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, the final refuge is I take refuge in Buddha. This is typically the first refuge uh, that we take as an entry into the precepts as well as the other refuges. Uh, however, I chose to make it the last because it has the most significance for me. So I'm going to read a quote from Tension to you. I'll probably read it a couple times. To take refuge in Buddha means to take refuge in what you really are. What you really are is already attained, always, every moment. What you really are is Buddha. You don't have to work at what you are. 
Part of what you are is what you think you are. Part, but what you think you are is not all what you are. It's just an aspect of what you are. If you think you're a worthy person or an unworthy person, not grasping those thoughts is Buddha. Should I read it again? Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> to take refuge in Buddha means to take refuge in what you really are. What you really are is already attained always, every moment. What you really are is Buddha. You don't have to work at what you are. Part of what you are is what you think you are, but what you think you are is not all of what you are. It's just an aspect of what you are. Being Buddha means being unattached to your thoughts about what you are. If you think you are a worthy person or an unworthy person, not grasping those is Buddha. So I mentioned earlier that coming to the Zen Center was the first time really in my life that I felt like I truly belonged to a community. And I was 44, 44 years it took to find this. Uh, prior to that, I was attached to ideas about who I was. Uh, when I came out at 19, I came out really hard. Uh, and I felt that uh, I desperately wanted to belong to the gay community because I thought I had found that. Um, but that meant for me having to be, you know, having to be the ultimate gay in order to be accepted, which in the 90s uh, meant having to have a certain kind of body. You had to have muscles, you had to have a hairless body, you had to act masculine, you had to have a really good career, and you had to love to dance and party all night long. <laughs> So I did everything I could to fit that part. I worked out, took forever to shave my body because I'm very hairy. <laughs> and I practiced, I actually practiced acting manly. And I also relentlessly practiced uh, on the turntables, the ones and twos, which they don't use anymore, to become a gay circuit disc jockey. <laughs> That's the dancing part. Um, for those who don't know, uh, gay circuit parties were huge in the 90s. I think they're still kind of big, but they were, and they're nonstop parties all weekend long from Friday night, sometimes Thursday night to Monday morning. Uh, and people would go to dance and party all weekend long and they're nonstop. Like, and the DJ is, was the main attraction, right? There's a DJ, there's different events, but then they all ran into each other. There was like never a break. Uh, there was a Friday night DJ, Saturday morning after hours DJ, Saturday pool party DJ, a Saturday main event DJ, a Sunday after hours DJ. Like, you get the picture. <laughs> um, so I practiced really hard because I wanted to do that because I thought if I'm, I'll be the center of attention. People will love me and want me, and I'll be, and I'll finally mean something. I'll finally belong. Um, so then the, the good news is I did. I became a very highly sought after, well-known circuit DJ. I traveled to eight countries on a regular basis. Uh, every weekend, I was in two or three cities. Um, I made a CD. <laughs> Back when CDs were a thing. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the bad news is it came at a really enormous price. Um, 
conditioned to believe that I was never enough, made it um, impossible to tolerate the times when it was true. It was impossible to work every single party or be invited to every single event or to be the hottest DJ or to have the best set of the weekend. Uh, it was impossible to get invited to all the fabulous after parties. Um, so I couldn't hold on to being the best and I couldn't avoid being the worst. So I, I ran away from it all with copious amounts of crystal meth. So Red writes, another part of what you are is a human being who keeps running away from what you are, who keeps trying to be something else. If you think that you're worthy, then you want to hold on to feeling worthy. If you feel unworthy, you may want to change or somehow fix yourself. In other words, you can be distracted and undermined by your ideas about yourself. In that sense, you flee from yourself. Naturally, the drug use infected every part of my life, my physical health, my mental and emotional health, my career suffered, my social life, and my relationship. And having had enough, my partner at the time gave me an ultimatum, get help or get out. So I owe my first therapist my life. He's responsible for helping me wake up, helping me see my delusions, and uh, helping me change my career. I'll never forget the most important lesson he imparted. Uh, I once told him this story uh, about a man I, I met years prior. Uh, it was during a New York Pride weekend. Uh, we were both visiting New York from our, from our respective cities. Um, and we had an immediate intense connection that lasted the entire weekend. And we, we agreed that we would try to continue this. Oh, okay. hey, you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> Been there, done that? <laughs> I did that a few times. <laughs> uh, so we agreed to continue the connection after we got back to our cities. Uh, and it last for, lasted for about a few months. And it came with this, finally an invitation, come, come visit me. I was so excited. Oh, great. When, you know, what airport do I need to fly into? Where do you, where do you live? Um, and then I never heard from him again. And I told my therapist that I didn't feel like I could love the partner that I was with, that I don't, didn't feel like I could ever truly love him because I was secretly waiting and longing for the New York Pride guy that uh, I thought that one day he'd come back into my life and we'd live happily ever after. Oh, this is good. The waterworks are gonna happen, I can tell. So my therapist looked at me ever so warmly and he said, you're not waiting to love this guy. And I was like, who are you? <laughs> How could you possibly know? I've been longing for this guy for like five years. How could you even know what I really <clears throat> am waiting to love? But still, I was intrigued. And I said, I'm not. And he said, no, you're waiting to love yourself. 
keep it together. Okay, one meaning of the word Buddha is unsurpassed, correct, and complete awakening. The second meaning is the person that achieves or realizes such awakening. So when my therapist told me that I was waiting to love myself, it's like a lightning bolt hit me. Every fiber and cell in my being vibrated, and I could see my life clearly. Um, in that moment, I became a Buddha. For I realized I had been running away from a habitual conditioned belief that I wasn't enough as I was. And that I was longing, searching, desperately pining for something outside myself to make me whole. There's another quote. Tension. You can never really run away from yourself. That it's only a delusion. You need to balance this delusion of running away with a recognition that is a, it is a delusion, that you didn't run away. Returning to Buddha is an antidote to running away from yourself. To come back to just be the way you are, including, <clears throat> including all your delusions, is to take refuge in Buddha. Should I read that one again? Yes. Okay. <laughs> These are some good ones. <laughs> You can never really run away from yourself. That is only a delusion. You need to balance this delusion of running away with the recognition that it is a delusion, that you didn't run away. Returning to Buddha is an antidote to running away from yourself. To come back, to just be the way you are, including all of your delusions, is to take refuge in Buddha. So in that moment, I knew that in my heart, I was enough. I just had to stop running and take refuge in that. Okay, another quote. When you take refuge, you're not trying to be something else. If you are a person who is trying to attain something, then in the act of taking refuge, you don't try to be somebody who is not trying to attain something. If you're someone who is not trying to attain something, then you don't try to become someone who is trying to attain something. You work with what you are. Taking refuge in Buddha means trusting that you are Buddha. Should we do that one again? These are some tough ones. When you take refuge, you are not trying to be someone else. If you're a person who is trying to attain something, then in the act of taking refuge, you don't try to be somebody who is not trying to attain something. If you're someone who is not trying to attain something, then you don't try to become someone who is trying to attain something. You work with what you are. Taking refuge means trusting that you are Buddha. So I didn't know that I was a Buddha. I just knew that I, in that moment I felt transformed. Uh, and then probably it's important to mention uh, that, you know, Knowing that I'm a Buddha doesn't mean that I think I belong on the altar, <laughs> my, my statue. But if I was, it would be that little guy that I showed you earlier. His statue <laughs> would be up there. <laughs> uh, being a Buddha doesn't mean that I think I'm higher, lower, better, worse, richer, or poorer than anyone else. It means that I know I am no different than anyone else, including the Buddha. So to take refuge in Buddha for me means 
to understand that I am perfectly imperfect and that's enough. <coughs> so I can't say for sure in that moment that my therapist's office led me here, more than likely. But I can definitely say that it planted the seeds of transformation, <coughs> which incidentally is the third meaning of the word Buddha, the transformation beings. Uh, I attribute much of who I am today to my therapist in that moment, uh, but also to the work that we did for a few years, um, which actually occurred over 20 years ago. And he was instrumental in helping me change my life. So uh, as I was in that process, I realized that, you know, I probably couldn't DJ anymore because I couldn't stay clean when I worked. Um, so I had to figure out a way I had to find another career and I just, therapy just made sense to me and we talked about it and he agreed that he thought I would make a good therapist. And so I had just had to go back to school and around that same time. Uh, my mother had been suffering with cancer and she had decided to end treatment. And so I flew home and interestingly, I was, uh, a very popular book at the time was The Art of Happiness by the Dalai Lama, and I was reading it. And it just so happens when I got on the plane, the chapter I was on was about losing a loved one. And the Dalai Lama said, uh, recommended that you ask your dying loved one what their wishes are for you. And so my mom knew all about what I was going through, and I, I asked her. And uh, she said that she wanted me to get clean, stay clean, and we go back to school. And here's something I don't think I ever told anyone. The third wish of hers was that I find me a good woman. <laughs> there she is. Um, and uh, I'd like to say his name, my therapist, Stephen Grossman, because he died just last year. Mm. So, of course, my transformation didn't stop there, nor am I fully enlightened. <laughs> every day is a struggle and it's an opportunity uh, every moment is an opportunity to take refuge in all three in the triple treasure and I was writing this talk I realized the phrase way-seeking mind is in the present tense uh, implying that you know uh, it's not past tense way sought it's uh, which you know says that once you find the path you're done that's not it right it's continually seeking and so <clears throat> so yeah the word seeking is a continuous effort to locate so diane rosetto who wrote the book waking up to what you do which is one of the books we use in our precept class she says um, that our identities continually recreate themselves to me, this means that our ego is constantly reimagining itself depending on with what and with whom we encounter. 
It's constantly evaluating. Did I say the right thing? Am I a nice person? Was I mean? Uh, I'm better than them. It's whatever it is, it's constantly recreating itself, redefining itself. It's constantly comparing and it's exhausting. And it's easy to get wrapped up in the mind's narratives. Just being up here, coming up here, just before I even got here, bowing. As I was in the middle of bowing, my mind was like, you're forgetting something. You look awful. Like, constant. Being up here, it's like, oh, you're going to go too fast. And then as I'm going too fast, oh, you're going too slow. Constant. Um, so you're not making sense. Did I make sense? <laughs> I got that down. Okay, so another quote by Rosetto. We begin over and over each day, each hour, each minute. We are constantly beginning our practice, and we are always beginners. Whenever we lose sight of that, we are lost. The starting point is our refuge. Enter here, just this moment of openness, the truth of just this. Just this is the gateway of transformation. When we can give over completely to our experience, it transforms into the peace and joy that comes with an open heart. So I'll read that one again. We begin over and over each day, each hour, each minute. We are constantly beginning our practice. And we are always beginners. Whenever we lose sight of that, we are lost. The starting point is our refuge. Enter here. Just this moment of openness, the truth of just this. It's like just this, right now, just this. Just this is the gateway of transformation. When we can give over completely to our experience, it transforms into the peace and joy that comes with an open heart. So to take refuge in Buddha is to return to who you are completely. To fully accept yourself is to love yourself. When you see yourself completely, you also see that you're no different from anyone else and that no one, anyone else is no different from you. And that's an act of belonging. In other words, the first refuge really contains the other two. When you take refuge in Buddha, you begin to understand the teaching of interdependence, which is taking refuge in Dharma. And you honor your connection with other beings, which is taking refuge in Sangha. Mm -hmm. 